Hello, welcome to my podcast, A Parallel, The Chinese Culture Revolution and the French Revolution. This is Episode 8, Kicking in a Rotten Door. The last episode, I spoke about King Louis XVI and the royal family's attempt to flee France, that they were prevented from doing so. Also, France got its constitution. In China, the purges continued. Foreigners were the targets. And we also learned that millions of students in China were exiled into the countryside. In this episode, I want to talk about France's war with Europe and that there was a new assembly in France that was being seated. I also will talk about the king's trial and his execution. In China, I will talk about the war preparations over border issues with the USSR that led to martial law and even more purges. I want to begin the episode with with this quote. All successful revolutions are the kicking in of a rotten door. The violence of revolutions is the violence of men who charge into a vacuum. End of quote. That quote is from John Galbraith. I want to take you back to the last episode, specifically to August of 1791 and the Declaration of Pilnitz. Recall that it was issued by the Queen's brother, Emperor Leo Leopold II, the Archduke of Austria, the King of Hungary, and King Frederick William II of Prussia, warning that there would be consequences to anyone harming the royal family. And the Declaration encouraged other European nations to join in their denunciation. The Declaration of Pilnitz, however, only managed to foment in France a lot of fear of invasion and It bolstered French nationalism. Now you can imagine what the French were thinking. They saw the Declaration of Pilnitz as a declaration of war against them. So, partially, as a result of the Pilnitz Declaration, the National Assembly on April 20, 1792, declared war on Austria. Prussia would later join with Austria. But the reasons for the declaration of war were a bit more complicated. The French were also worried about the vast numbers of emigre royalists, and they feared they were planning to attack France. 
the assembly wanted to delay or stop the invasion, unify the French people, and spread their revolutionary ideas throughout Europe. The king of France and the Fayos, the conservative deputies, and the Girondists, or Girondists, the more radical groups, supported the war. But all of them did so for different reasons. The king hoped the war would increase his popularity and also help him regain power. The Fayos, or Fayus, wanted to preserve the country. The Girondists wanted to spread the revolution through Europe. Queen Marie Antoinette encouraged her brother to invade France to stop the French Revolution. That summer, the Austro-Prussian army crossed into the French border and were advancing rapidly toward Paris. At first, the French military efforts were weak and uncoordinated, and they offered little resistance. Things had started out badly for the French. Prices in France rose, citizens rioted even more, and there were counter-revolutionaries causing trouble in some areas of France. In September of 1792, however, the French military achieved their first major military victory. At Valmy, France, they were able to stop the invasion and actually pushed the invaders back. This enabled the French to invade Belgium and Austria. This war would see thrusts, pullbacks, and parries. If the Chinese countryside exile movement was not enough drama for you, events outside and near China provided more drama. After the Soviet Union invaded Czechoslovakia in August of 1968, China went on a heightened state of alert and insecurity. Events got ramped up in March of 1969. There had been for a long time violent clashes between the Chinese and the Soviet military forces along the long border they shared. But in March of 1969, the disputed island in the middle of the Wo Shuli River, or in Russia, pronounced Yusiya, became a focal point. The disputed island, Jenbao, or Jenbaodao, became the object of a Chinese attack and capture forcing the Soviets to abandon the island. But when the Soviets, in response, sent a built-up military force there, Mao backed down, believing he had accomplished his primary goal of putting the Soviets on notice. Later, however, in August of 1969, the Soviets counterattacked in Xinjiang province, and they inflicted heavy damages and they gained some of the territory from the Chinese. The USSR was preparing for a full-scale conflict with their neighbor at that point. It seemed for a moment that the summer of 1969 
that China and the Soviet Union were going to go to war with each other. But the war preparations by the USSR caught Mao off guard. He did not expect the Soviets' reaction. It was believed then the Soviets had the superior equipment and weapons. And China was not ready for this scale of a conflict. In the end, Beijing caved and sought and received a meeting with the Soviets to discuss their border issues. After the initial clashes with the Soviets on the Wo Shuli River, which is geographically located in the southeast corner of Heilongjiang province in northeast China or Manchuria, Mao used those clashes as propaganda and declaring that the nation should prepare for war. Arch sycophant of Mao, Lin Biao, the Minister of Defense, used the island takeover to declare martial law. Martial law was viewed by many as just another means and reason to get rid of political rivals. Shortly after the Wu Shu Li River Island event, the CCP's Ninth Party Congress opened in Beijing. Mao used the new Congress to reverse the repudiations of his ideas and efforts 13 years before in 1956. In total secrecy, the Ninth Congress named Lin Biao as Mao's successor. Also, they approved a new constitution and made Mao Zedong thought the theoretical basis of the CCP and China. By the fall of 1969, the Cultural Revolution group groups had ceased to exist. The war preparation had raised Lin Biao's status and gave him more power. As Lin Biao's status rose, Mao's distrust of him grew. And with his old friend, Zhou Enlai, along with Madame Mao, Jiang Qing, they began to plot and maneuver against Lin Biao. Meanwhile, Mao continued to urge citizens to prepare for war, up until the settlement talks with the Soviets. The war scare was used by the CCP to accelerate the removal of millions of people to the, co- to the countryside. Mao urged citizens to dig underground shelters and be ready for street fighting. Mao went so far to envision a vast underground network of tunnels. Many people took his advice, and disaster followed. The tunnels and dugouts were done mostly without any engineering or geological study or knowledge. The consequences of this were predictable. Homes collapsed, as well as the tunnels and the shelters. The opening phase of the war with Austria and Prussia did not go well, and that caused much turmoil in France. The turmoil encouraged the Jacobins to seize power, using a parliamentary coup against the Girondists, 
By then, the Jacobins had already joined with the Sanculats, and so they became the effective center of the new government in France, which was a definite turn toward the radicals. On July 25, 1792, the Allied commander, the Duke of Brunswick, issued a declaration designed by the émigrés and intended to strike fear in France. The declaration wanted an end to the anarchy in France and to stop the attack on the crown and the clergy. The Allies intended to liberate the royal family and reestablish the king's authority. Paris was warned that no harm was to come to the royals. The immediate result of the declaration in France was the National Assembly's call to arms, allowing the distribution of weapons to citizens in Paris and to activate her military forces. Another result was on August 9th or 10th, depending on your source, of the year 1792, a group of left extremists proclaimed themselves to be an insurrectionary commune, and after a bloody and deadly exchange with the Swiss guards stationed at the Tuileries Palace, found and took into their custody the royal family. They removed the royal family to the ancient medieval fortress called the Temple. The Temple was built by the Knights Templar in the 13th century and served as their European headquarters. From that point in time, it was clear the king would never again sit on the throne without foreign help. The National Assembly quickly declared that the monarchy was suspended until the next National Assembly could decide the future form of the French government. The National Assembly also chose a new Minister of Justice, George Danton, a member of the Jacobin Club and supporter of the San Culats. In mid-August 1792, there were only six weeks left to the term of the National Assembly, and it had turned markedly left. It wanted revenge against those that abetted the king and those that resisted the popular will. The National Assembly, speaking through the Paris Commune, also wanted revenge against Marquis de Lafayette for his role in the butchery at the Chaux de Mas massacre. But the Marquis de Lafayette had fled to Prussia, surrendered himself to the enemy, and he spent the next five years conveniently out of harm's way in an Austrian prison. On September 20th, 1792, the newly elected assembly, now calling themselves a convention, declared France a republic and abolished the monarchy. This happened to be the very same day of France's first military victory against the Austrian-Prussian Allied force in the Battle of Valmy. On September 20. 2nd, 1792, the National Convention, or Assembly, remade the calendar, calling it the French Revolutionary Calendar, and initiating Year One of the Republic. It was realized then that the king was no longer needed. The big debate 
that consumed the national convention was what to do about the king. The Girangists wanted to keep him imprisoned. The more radical factions wanted the king put on trial. On December 11, 1792, King Louis XVI was indicted for high treason and over 30 crimes, including locking out of the National Assembly that forced them to take the tennis court oath. The king was blamed for the Allies' manifesto and seen as conspiring with their enemies against public liberty and general safety. The king requested legal counsel and got it. During his trial, he was addressed as Louis Capet, emphasizing his reduced station. The evidence presented against him was overwhelming. There was never much doubt about whether the king would be convicted. The big question is what would be his penalty? The verdict of his conviction was nearly unanimous, and it was announced by the National Assembly, or Convention, on January 15, 1793. No one voted for acquittal. His punishment was then debated, and there the decision was much closer. The debate was between imprisonment or death. The final vote on the punishment was close. A slim majority of the members of the convention voted for execution. The date of January 21, 1793 was set for King Louis's execution by guillotine, which, by the way, had only been put into use the summer before in 1792. The execution of a monarch cannot be classified as anything other than a huge moment. It symbolized so many things. The big one was, it was officially the death of the Anshin regime, or the ancient regime. It was a bold statement by the French radicals. Even Robespierre, who had publicly denounced the death, death penalty, before, voted for the death sentence. But the execution also set in motion reactions that would drag France, the French, and the revolution into even deeper conflicts. There are contrasting stories from the countryside movement during the 1967 to 1970 era. Those stories paint a different and an ironical picture than the famine, disease, and poverty-stricken hellholes many of the peasants and students experienced. For a while, during this era, the government was distracted and its attention was away from the day-to-day countryside affairs. The war efforts and party purges allowed some of the freedoms to return that had been taken away by the communists. For instance, in some of China's provinces, a thriving economy began to operate outside of the government's immediate view and control. The timber industry 
And wood manufacturers, for example, made a lot of locals rich because of the supply-demand ecosystem that flourished. On November 12, 1969, a month after his expulsion from the CCP, Liu Shaoqi, the former vice chair of the CCP, died in solitary confinement. He had been repeatedly beaten in confinement, denied medical treatment or any assistance. He was known to have diabetes. After his body was cremated, Chairman Mao toasted to the event. Mao, however, believed there were still plenty of traitors and counter-revolutionaries and revisionists within the CCP. Mao's puppy, Zhou Enlai, advised him at the end of 1969 that there were still plenty of people that were sabotaging the nation's preparation for war. And the chairman agreed. In the next episode, I will continue as these revolutions run their courses. Thank you. It has been a pleasure.